This is Pandemic Planet, the podcast where we talk about the urgent health security threats facing the world, the geopolitical and societal challenges they present, and how the United States can best lead health security efforts abroad while protecting Americans at home. Pandemic Planet is the podcast series of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. While our sister podcast series, Coronavirus Crisis Update, focuses on what's happening in America, here on Pandemic Planet, we'll look at the global and geopolitical effects of health security threats. Welcome to Pandemic Planet. Well, it's a real pleasure to be speaking with Alan Whiteside here in Montreal, Canada at the International AIDS Conference. Uh, Alan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, why don't we just jump uh, right in? What are some of the most important trends and breakthroughs uh, in HIV treatment and prevention? I think obviously the important trend is uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis, uh, which is important, but it's only for a very, very small percentage of the population. It's not something that could be rolled out, in my opinion, to those most affected. And I would single out African women living in Southern Africa. For them, it's unlikely to ever be feasible. With treatment, we've got treatment that will allow people to live normal lives for who knows how long at this point in time, which is a huge breakthrough. But the problems, and there are two, are first of all, getting people to get on the treatment, and secondly, ensuring that they remain adherent. UNAIDS issued its most recent Global AIDS report last week, and uh, they showed that uh, there are now something like 28.7 million people on antiretroviral therapy around the world, which is a remarkable amount of progress since 20 years or so ago, when uh, there were relatively few people in Africa, for instance, um, who had access to, to treatment. But there still means there are 10 million people who don't have access to therapy. So what are some of the barriers that are keeping us from getting more people on treatment? If you look at the cascade, obviously the first thing is to know your status, because mm -hmm. unless you know your status, you can't uh, access treatment. The second thing is to actually have access to that treatment, and in some parts of the world you won't because of economics, in other parts of the world you won't because of stigma, and then there are also countries which are frankly unable to deliver because they're war-torn, or corrupt and inept at doing this. So those, I think, are the, probably the main barriers for people to access treatment. But I think one of the big things is the treatment is something you have to take for life. And those of us who are our age know that taking treatment for chronic conditions, in my case, hypertension and glycoma, it's a pain. And I totally understand how younger people would find having to take antiretrovirals for the rest of their lives and being identified, therefore, as being HIV positive, to be quite a traumatic and difficult process. You know, you mentioned before, of course, one of the things that's uh, causing excitement in the HIV community is the introduction of long-acting treatments, so that rather than having to take treatments every day for the rest of your life, it, uh, you know, now there are treatments that you can take every two months. Um, there's some uh, hope that that, will, uh, that period will be extended to once a year or a couple of times a year. Um, so that should certainly um, ease the challenge of, of adherence over the long term. Uh, but you said that you don't think that um, many people who could benefit from those treatments and from PrEP, because some of the same medicines are used for 
pre-exposure prophylaxis as well as long-acting treatment that uh, particularly African women would not get access and that it wasn't feasible to think of those as a solution over the long term. But tell us more about why you think that African women in particular are, are going to find it problematic to get access to PrEP and, and long-acting treatments. I think I would say rather that that is the challenge, mm-hmm. not that we can't do it, but we need to go into this with eyes wide open. It is entirely feasible to get these things out to these people, but then we have to address the dear old social determinants of mm-hmm. health, which the WHO did so well several years ago. And that means it's around time, transport, money, if money is going to be needed. It's around the uh, gender-based violence and gender-based mm-hmm. discrimination. And the, all those things need to be addressed. And I think one of the things which has come through at this conference is it's still so damnably technical without looking at the real issues that real people face on the ground in their countries, whether it be Lesotho or the Dominican Republic. Yeah, and I know uh, you were telling me about a new issue of the journal that you edit, the African Journal of AIDS Research, which has just come out with a set of essays about HIV in the time of COVID-19. And one of the uh, main themes of that issue is the importance of addressing inequality, which you've just been alluding to. So tell us more about what the findings are uh, in the, uh, that issue of the journal, what the authors that you brought together discovered in their work. Uh, Jeff, I'm not certain I'm the best person to tell you that because I edited it, <laughs> didn't really read and reflect on things as much <laughs> as I should have. I think without doubt the most striking thing was the willingness of our authors to write about this and the lack of information they had. The contrast between AIDS and COVID is AIDS has been around since 1981. COVID was recognized in January 2020. So trying to find decent material to pull for this Mm -hmm. was really problematic to the authors. And a lot of it was done on a wing and a prayer, or more accurately, perhaps, a thumb suck. Of course, the one thing that we can be sure of is that AIDS has enabled us to look at some of the big issues. For example, there's stigma with COVID, just the same as there was with AIDS. Differences. Older people with COVID and higher case fatality rates among the older people. Uh, Younger people with AIDS. COVID is a disease you can recover from with treatment. AIDS is a chronic condition which will carry on for the rest of your life. But there's still questions around health systems, around access to health. And I come back again to poverty, inequality, and particularly for women who sadly are marginalized purely because they are women. What are the answers, Alan? I mean, what what do you think has to be done to address those questions in a sustainable way? Well, first of all, let's say that COVID has made addressing any of those answers that much more difficult. We've seen a rise in poverty. Uh, The lockdowns in South Africa meant people sat in their um, shacks in Tantra townships Mm -hmm. and had lives of quiet desperation because they weren't allowed out. And the police enforced that with absolute rigor. Well, what, what can we do to address these long-term uh, determinants of poverty, inequality, and marginalization? So the marginalization, it has to come from two groups. The people who have power and the people who have been marginalized. And somehow the people who have been marginalized need to come together and, and, and find their agency. 
and the people who have power have to allow that. And I think one of the real things that we're seeing around the world is that the marginalized are becoming more marginalized. Hmm. If you knew your Bible, the Matthew effect it's called, unto them that have shall more be given, and from them that hath not, even that shall be taken away. And that really is what's happening around the world. So poverty is a, a really difficult one. And I fear I don't see governments picking up this in the way that they should. Those of us who live in the north have seen many programs to help people facing crises because of the COVID pandemic. We had furlough programs in the United Kingdom and those really did support people, not, not to, to live the fine old life, mm. but certainly to survive. Those haven't been around in so many parts of Africa. So it's the poor borrowing from the desperate or the desperate borrowing from the poor. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and of course, the COVID pandemic isn't over and that's laid on top of, uh, of HIV. Are there any bright spots? I mean, can you point to examples where governments have actually addressed these issues well? Are there lessons to be learned there that we can adapt for other contexts? I think there are absolutely examples of where governments have addressed this well, but sadly most of the world would look at that and say they've addressed things less badly mm -hmm. because we didn't really know how to respond. I think in the countries where you had social support, that was hugely important because you can't on the one hand enforce a lockdown and not provide resources for those people who are locked down. And mm -hmm. we saw that level of desperation quite clearly in parts of China as communities faced uh, dwindling supplies and an inability to move out. So the key thing which we haven't done and which we should have done, and we know it from HIV and AIDS, is to get communities involved as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. And I guess part of that is saying at the beginning of this pandemic, we don't know. So what we're going to do is to enforce a lockdown for three months and then we'll reassess this. We'll talk about the logic of what we're doing. We'll communicate it with you and then we'll move on to the next stage. Instead, what you had was governments enforcing lockdowns that went on and on and on. And some governments beginning to realize that it made a great deal of sense to have a population in controlled through fear and hmm. law and they didn't really mind. Well, that's, uh, that's a sort of dispiriting conclusion from, from all of that. Let me turn to uh, a different uh, set of issues. You're an economist by, by training, and you know, one, of the, uh, one of the fellow members of that tribe has referred to the treatment mortgage uh, as you know, the, the burden of costs that's got, going to be borne by society as more and more people are put on treatment, because this is, as you pointed out, a chronic condition when you have adequate treatment. Uh, and that means that rather than there being fewer people living with HIV, there will be more people living with HIV over time, and the costs will mount. How have economists helped policymakers to make sense of how to make HIV treatment sustainable? Dear Mead Over, our friend and <laughs> colleague, uh, yes, the treatment mortgage, it's a very real thing. But the problem is you only feel the pain of the mortgage if it's you who has borrowed the money. If it's somebody else's money, you don't feel that. And we all, we all know that the way that the HIV epidemic is funded is still largely by donors. Mm. The pain isn't being felt by national governments 
And so they don't feel that they have a treatment mortgage. They feel that they have somebody else who's supporting that. Uh, you're right again about the numbers of people growing. And then I think we're into a really important question, which is, uh, what are people's rights? Well, I sat through a session where we heard about the average spend, the average health care mm-hmm. spend in Kenya. And the number I remember, I hope it's correct, is $179 per person per year. Now, somebody who's on HIV treatment will be consuming that amount of money and more per year just for one disease. Mm. So the questions of equity and exceptionalism really haven't been tackled. And I think that's the biggest challenge for the people who work in HIV and AIDS as faced with, now faced with COVID, is to realize we're not the number one disease anymore. Mm. We're definitely not the number one disease. And we have to work out where we are going to fit in the pantheon of diseases and what are the correct advocacy tools that we can use for this. And I'm afraid I don't see very little recognition of that. Throughout this conference, I have heard very little of the economics. Mm -hmm. And the economics I've heard is around cost effectiveness. And cost effectiveness is how we make best use of the envelope of resources that we have. That's what cost effectiveness is. How do we we use the money effectively? The reality is we need more money. So then we have to turn to cost benefit Mm -hmm. and say, it's worth doing this because the benefits outweigh the costs. There is, however, a small risk that a cost-benefit analysis will tell you it doesn't make sense. And then we have to be prepared to face that and find other arguments for the continued uh, support to the HIV and AIDS pandemic. You spoke earlier about the fact that the support to the HIV pandemic uh, over the past 20 years or so has been largely from donors. And the, uh, there are some countries um, who have actually stepped up to the plate and really supported it through national uh, resources. John and Kengasong, the, uh, the AIDS ambassador from the U.S. who leads PEPFAR, uh, was speaking yesterday about Botswana's experience because Botswana has uh, just published some data uh, together with uh, CBC about how they have uh, met the 95-95-95 targets. And as you'll know, uh, as somebody who has worked, lived and worked in Botswana, uh, Botswana was one of the countries that was most direly affected by the AIDS pandemic. Uh, 20 years ago, they had adult prevalence approaching something like 40%. And uh, the number of HIV positive women whose children were born HIV positive was also about 40%. And now these new data show that Botswana has gotten to the point where maternal fetal transmission is under 1%. Uh, and they've, uh, as I said before, they've gotten to the, the 95, 95, 95 target so that viral suppression now is at a very high level and everybody who needs treatment is on treatment. And that's been possible to get back to the point I started with because, you know, they've had PEPFAR support over the years, but they've also funded much of the response from the national budget. And also uh, Botswana is an uh, upper middle income country, so they have the resources and have made the decision that uh, as you said, cost-benefit analysis, the benefits outweigh the costs, and so they've made those investments. But not every country is like Botswana. They don't have those resources uh, and haven't been able to, uh, to find them. I mean, what do you think the answer is going to be in the long run? Uh, if, as we see now, UNAIDS reported also that budgetary <coughs> support or donor support to uh, lower and middle-income countries is now lower than it was 10 years ago, 
stalled out at about $21 billion, which leaves an $8 billion gap for the amount of money needed annually for the HIV response. So how do you make those two curves come together? How are we going to find a sustainable solution? Well, first of all, Jeff, I think we're being a dis- bit disingenuous by using the Botswana example, because it is the one that we can look at and mm-hmm. say this is a stunning success. I don't think South Africa's done too badly. I think mm-hmm. Namibia may be moving in the right direction. But going beyond that, it's very hard to find examples mm. of where things are going well. And of course, we also need to remind you that you, in your previous career, were heavily involved in Botswana, and you were driving them in the direction that has led them to get to where they are now, which is mm. a good place. Yeah, well, I, I played a very small role, but, but you're right, Botswana is an, uh, an outlier. But also, as um, John and Kangasong said yesterday, it shows that when you put science, innovation, partnerships, and political will together, it shows what's possible. So I, you know, how do we bring that, that um, combination of factors together in, in other countries in the region? I mean, you've, you know, you're, we first met when you were doing work on the economic response to HIV in, in Southern Africa, so you probably know as much as anybody about, about those issues. How do you think we can bring those factors together in a more constructive and sustainable way? I don't think we can, Hmm. to be quite honest. I think the one thing which you mentioned is the need for leadership. But the other thing that is requisite is people caring about this. And I'm afraid that AIDS is such that people care less about it. But leadership and the willingness to put resources into this is really critical. But let's go back to what I just said. Kenya, $179. I don't think you can treat a person with uh, less than $200 per patient per year if you put them on antiretrovirals. So you already, already if, if it was national money, you'd be privileging them over other people. Mm-hmm. And that, I'm not certain that the Department of Health or the National Ministry of Health uh, would be prepared to do. The moment it's being done because there is so much donor money, and I think probably the answer, and I'm coming to an answer, mm-hmm. which I'm thinking about as we were talking, is to box clever with the international resources and to make it conditional. It's time that we stopped uh, supporting regimes which are oppressive and brutal to their people. It's time we stopped allowing that top slicing of money through corruption and misuse of mm-hmm. resources. I think that's where we need to go. So I think there are three key groups here. One is the leaderships of the countries that we're talking about have to care about this. Mm-hmm. Two, the people who are affected need to be mobilized. Three, the outsiders, be their donors or advocates, need to be realistic about what can and can't be done. And most importantly, they need to be able to say, this can't happen. We're really sorry, but this cannot be allowed. And we recognize this, this will affect people mm-hmm. on the ground. And we're terribly sorry about that. We just can't go on in this way. Economists talk about the greatest good for the greatest number. And that means that not everybody will get it. You know, um, you just made me think, speaking of the greatest good for the greatest number, shortly after the UN system uh, decided with the Millennium Development Goals and then later with the Sustainable Development Goals that they were going to try to achieve health for all, you know, part of that was the call for the universal health coverage by 2030, which coincidentally, is also the date that we're talking about ending AIDS by. But how can, uh, you know, as you said, the example you used of Kenya, which has less than $200 per person per year to spend on health, 
how are they going to achieve universal health coverage with such exiguous resources? It relates to the problem you were just talking about, the factors of they have to care about HIV, they have to uh, make the right kind of investments, they have to get communities mobilized and engaged. Uh, but how will we get to universal health coverage if we can't deal with some of the challenges that we're already facing? I think for me the answer is, and I come back to where I have spent most of my career, you know me as somebody who worked intensively on AIDS, but you also know me as somebody who looked at things through a broad lens. Mm. I never saw it purely as an economist, I saw it as a political scientist, I saw it as a father, I saw it through many, many lenses. So what the, probably the only way we're going to get to that is if we can leverage the resources that go into AIDS, if we can identify ways to ensure that there are spillovers mm -hmm. with that money. and. That means that health money needs to be not just health money, but also the Department of Cooperatives, the Department of Women's Affairs, etc., etc. And basically, the, the, the one thing which probably stops that is uh, people's egos and people's unwillingness to share resources. But it's the only way we're going to be able to deal with this. Yeah, I guess, you know, people have called what you're talking about is, uh, is a whole of society response. Mm -hmm. And, and of course, you've also given the answer to why it's so difficult to get that kind of a response because of vested interests and other priorities. You know, if, if we asked you to be the person in charge of the global AIDS response tomorrow, how would you try to um, move the ball on, on some of those issues? You know, what are the practical things we could start doing that would, would get people to take a broader view and to start making the changes that would help reach more people in a sustainable way? Ironically, I think the answer is to devolve, mm. to take a narrower view, to take a broader view, if you can see what I mean. Well, explain that, explain that. So I think essentially what we have to do is uh, we have to give power to, more power to local communities. So we, we focus down, and if we do that, then I believe they would take a broader view. And well, let's go back to Botswana, which is such a wonderful example of a society which has transformed. But what has been underlying that? The answer is, a society which is quite respectful of, of other people in it, a society which is imperfectly democratic, but it is democratic. So you have the potential to get rid of the, the people in power, which, let's face it, coming from England as I do, doesn't seem to be something we can look forward to <laughs> to the same extent. So uh, I think democracy, voices, devolution in order to revolution. Let's, let's give you a, 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 a slogan. Devolution for revolution. Devolution <laughs> for revolution. Okay, we'll try that. But I, well, I think that it's an interesting perspective, Alan, that by actually bringing things down to, uh, to the community level, looking at it from the lens of the people who are directly affected by this condition, by HIV and its impact on, on local society, they'll come up with solutions that address the range of different structural and social factors that you were talking about. Uh, and that will then lead to progress, which you can then build on and come up with scalable solutions that will work more broadly. I so, think that's exactly right. Yeah. And I think that also speaks to the, if we weren't sitting here talking about AIDS, if, if we were entering the fields we're entering, we're entering the field now, if we were 20, 30 years younger, mm -hmm. the number one issue would be climate change. Hmm. environmental devastation. I think, you, as you say, we look to AIDS for lessons from, for COVID. I think we need to look to AIDS and to COVID for lessons for environmental 
uh, degradation and, and the, the, the things we're facing in the environmental field. And for me, yes, health is critical, but it's an individual and societal issue. The environment is a global issue, mm -hmm. and I really sincerely hope that we can get to grips with it because our children and grandchildren will be living with yeah. the decisions we made. You know, it, it's, I'm intrigued by what you said, that we should be looking to AIDS and COVID for solutions that can be applicable to, uh, to climate change. So, you know, give me an example. What, what are you thinking of? What can we learn from the responses to those pandemics that could be applied to a global challenge like climate change? So I think it's really about how we treat people. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's about giving power to people who would use it responsibly. And I'm afraid I'm going to come back to women. We need to really uh, make sure that women have far more power and resources, and I think they would use it better. There's a brilliant uh, little story about um, uh, positive deviance, uh, stories of a, a family in a Bangladeshi village who were really healthy in an environment where most people weren't. Mm -hmm. And the researchers went and looked and said, well, what are these people doing that's different? And they discovered that the mother of this family when she went out to the paddy fields, as she came back, she'd collect shrimp from the, the irrigation channels and she put it in the food of that family. So we have to look for the positive deviance and try and see how far we can mm -hmm. replicate it. Obviously, if every family collected the shrimp, there probably wouldn't be any shrimp, and that's the tragedy <laughs> of the commons. Right. But we have to find a way to look at what does work and uh, scale it up and roll it out. That is a, an interesting story, and it, you know, in a way, it's uh, that's been used um, already. At, for instance, in PEPFAR, one of the things that they did was analyze uh, performance of different clinics in countries that they scaled up, and they looked for the clinics that were actually getting better results in terms of health outcomes. Then asked, investigated, why are they doing better than the mean? And then they would take those examples and roll them out uh, throughout the entire network. And that was a way of getting more health for the money uh, than, uh, than they were doing before. So it is a, a very powerful, powerful approach. So then my question to you has to be, we have this positive example for, from PEPFAR. Why don't we all know about it? Mm -hmm. Why is it that, and I think it's partly the sort of tragedy of journalism, that uh, man bites dog is a story, dog bites man isn't. <laughs> um, so I, 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 I think that one of the lessons we really do need to take forward as uh, people working in HIV and AIDS and in health generally mm -hmm. is to be able to tell these positive stories. The problem is once you've rolled it out everywhere, then it's no story. But that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. And we have to remind ourselves that success is also a story. It's not just failure, it's a story. You know, you've certainly done a lot in your own work to make sure that people know about successes in, in HIV. And I think that, uh, you know, your point about communication is, is clearly a critical one. Well, let me just ask you one last question, Alan. What, uh, you know, this has been a wide-ranging conversation. What gives you optimism for the future? I think coming to this conference has given me optimism. It's so nice to see our tribe gathering again, even with face masks, and to see some of the enthusiasm that other people have. Optimism comes from younger people and people in their 20s and 30s, young students. Although, let's be clear, for them it's really difficult to be optimistic, given what we've just lived through for the last two years. Mm. So I think there is a potential for 
things to change, for better things to happen. I think we also have some real opportunities coming back to the environment. I personally, well, you and I both, would jump on a plane every week. I won't be doing that again. Mm -hmm. And I suspect most people will feel the same way. And that's really quite encouraging, that we are going to start take, taking responsibility for our footprint on the environment, as well as our footprint on our fellow human beings. That's a good note on, on which to close. And I want to thank you for taking the time for, uh, for talking to us and, and giving us a lot of food for thought. Thanks as so. always, it has been a pleasure to do this. And thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 